Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voice of Nero, another Philosopher Clock episode with Eche Fatum. <coughs> this time, we're going to be covering medieval philosophy, specifically medieval philosophy in Europe. That's correct, right? Yes, um, medieval, like only Europe had the medieval period. The other um, like Eastern philosophy didn't go through the Dark Ages. There were some warring periods, though, that I think occurred in a similar period. Japan was up to some yeah. Shogun stuff in that period, I think. Yeah, um, but China has already finished the book burning for about 500 years when we started the Dark Ages. Okay. But they had similar periods, but not during a similar time. Mm -hmm. Cool. So to start, we'll why is it called that. the Dark Ages? Um, yeah, so to kind of set the period, it's um, roughly 500 um, AC that the Middle Age starts in terms of philosophy. There's different definitions of when the Middle Age starts, but the big point in philosophy would be the closing of the last um, um, Platonic school and making that into a monastery. So what we see happen is that the church is taking over from the Roman Empire. And as everything gets to be more Christian and less uh, based on the uh, Greek or Roman gods, um, we start to not see as much variety in thought anymore. Cool. So and the church is the commanding a monopoly of... on ideas. Exactly. And they have a monopoly on people knowing how to read and write as well, for the most part. Mm. And it's difficult to do philosophy if you don't know how to read or write. It's but it's not... It's not impossible, it's, but it's certainly a lot more convenient it's not impossible. if you can read. <laughs> it makes it hard for other people to know that you did philosophy. Mm. I think that's the main problem. Um... Yeah, so one of the important points here is that there was the change in the Roman Empire. Um, in 1313, um, Emperor Constantine made the Edict of Milano, and he basically gave freedom of religion to the people living in the Roman Empire. So before that, Christians were... Um, Wow, they did all sorts of nasty things to Christians as to other religions. Um, and Constantine allowed everyone to have basically any religion and there was no more. Um, they didn't punish people for having the quote-unquote wrong religion. And roughly 70 years later, um, Emperor Theodosius um, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So they went from hating Christians to being okay with them to everyone officially being Christian within roughly 70 years. 
It's pretty fast. Yeah. One of the things that I like to think about when it comes to religions especially is they're a framework of ideas and there's the success at how effectively you can pitch those to people who have not heard of it before, which is kind of related to what are the perks and the benefits and whatnot of this religious belief. And then another one is how effectively can it overcome another existing framework? So it has to take up someone else's slot for whatever their pre-existing framework was for understanding the world. And Christianity definitely knocked out a lot of other competing ideas. One that you can see in the show Vikings that they put in the forefront is the Norse pagan traditions versus discovering Christianity, having different reasons to get baptized into the church, because you can do that to make an alliance, kind of like how royals might get married to someone for a strategic benefit. You could also get baptized into the church for a strategic benefit. Yeah, so that's uh, the main work of the medieval philosophy is to make a framework to combine all the other ideas into Christianity. So there was one thing for certain in medieval philosophy, and that is that God exists. So you had to make a philosophical framework that makes that work. And the problem they had with the philosophy that came before, especially the Greek philosophy, it wasn't straightforward. It was, it had possibilities. It wasn't, this is right, this is wrong. And there's a small issue with that. Basically, um, if you have a almighty God that created everything, one thing he definitely didn't do is to put contradiction into uh, the universe. So if there's no contradiction created by God, there ought to be no contradiction in philosophy as well. So everything has to be straightforward, and that's the work they did. So they combined all the different ideas and thoughts and made them as straightforward as possible and giving them a framework that is not open to interpretation because there's no need for interpretation because there's just this one solution. That's what they tried to do at least. They failed for the most part or it's it has been debated ever since and we come to some ideas that have been around since the medieval ages and are still somewhat common. Um, creationism, for example, which is based on a medieval idea. I have a lot of family members who are creationists. For those who don't know what that is, young earth creationists believe that the earth was created about 6,000 years ago. Evolution is made up. It's not actually real. God pretty much put people on the earth in their finished form. There were advances in technology and things like this, but they believe that we didn't go through major genetic change from species to species. Yeah, also that they buried uh, dinosaur bones, or God uh, buried dinosaur bones. They never really existed, so they just put there for us to have fancy things to find. Mm -hmm. 
Some people say that they were put there specifically to test our faith. And faith is a concept that I'm sure we'll get into quite a bit through this segment, but that's believing in something without evidence for it, which is yeah. uh, an interesting concept. But that's treated as a virtue within the Christian church, and I would guess within a lot of other belief systems as well, where that's an indication of your level of piety if you believe without seeing. Yeah, faith is important in any religion. It doesn't go specifically well with philosophy because philosophy at least used to be somewhat of a more hard science than it is perceived to be now. So they wanted to make things um, logical. They wanted to make their reason as good as they can. So there ought to be no contradiction in reasoning which brought most philosophers up until the dark ages to the point where they had to say, well, it kind of depends, it could be this or that. And then they wanted to put that in the Christian framework where everything had to be this straightforward, which made things a bit more difficult for them. And yeah, medieval philosophy is not, is basically the same as theology during that time, which is not something that has happened during any other time, in Western philosophy at least. So I have three different sources of notes, which is probably not optimal, but at least there's a bunch of notes. We have plenty of material to work with here. Yeah, so with the the change from the Greco-Roman gods to Christianity in the Roman Empire, there was a lot of older books that were lost. So basically, when the church took over, they buried, they didn't do book burnings, but they didn't allow any um, or much of the Greek books anymore. And also they were actually lost. They just didn't have the texts anymore. So for the most part, from the 5th till the 13th century, all the scholars had little in terms of Greek texts to work with. One of the biggest texts was Bophius, and he is sort of the breaking point between, or the starting point of medieval philosophy. And his work was going through the Greek texts and making them available for Latin readers at the time. And he did an all right job at conveying the ideas, but it was already, um, It already had this Christian flavor to it, which is not optimal because you want to have the original texts and what they originally thought rather than someone commenting on it um, in a flavored kind of way. That being said, though, Bophius' work, um, the the consolation of philosophy is something that's definitely worth reading. It's the 
it's basically one small book that you can get that covers all of Greek philosophy up until the uh, start of the Dark Ages. It's called Consolation of Philosophy? Yes. Cool. Yeah, I know that's a problem with a lot of different belief systems and just information in general is the fact that whenever it's being copied, sometimes it gets changed. Or if there's a new interpretation, preserving the original one is also difficult. So an example would be the Bible and how the different passages from it were written in some language and oftentimes when they were translated there were some things that were changed or interpreted differently so it's not exactly the same text as it started out to be do you know the history of the different languages the bible was written in and how it was translated probably not as well as your notes are about to tell us <laughs> <laughs> so the Old Testament was originally written in Aramaic, but we didn't have um, the Aramaic version for the longest time. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were found some, I want to say 50 years ago, not sure about the, the timeline, that's the Aramaic version. Um, the version that was used for translation up until say the the end of the 19th century was originally written in greek and it was written in terrible greek that's um worth noting so it wasn't up to the standards of the time it wasn't like reading plato but it was just someone translating it doing an okay job but it was not something beautiful to read mm. Not at the time, not today. Um, so one of the first things that the church did was making a beautiful Latin translation of the Greek version to have something to work with. And there's already um, a few interesting changes that happened. Um, one noteworthy one is the first part of the Bible. Uh, I'm not sure what it says in Greek or in Latin, but the, the English translation of the Latin version is first um, there was God. Now, first there was the word and the word was God. And the translation of the Greek version would say first there was the conversation and the conversation was with God. So there's, it has a similar meaning, but it, it's quite a difference. So there's many changes that happen when something gets translated. And from the Latin version came the King James Bible, which edited in a way to make it a bit more mainstream i guess would be the the best way to put it so it made it easier to understand it made it more straightforward in terms of the teachings it did do an okay job in preserving the the main ideals of the bible but it was also politically uh, flavored in terms of what do you want your subjects to know mm. 
And I'm not even sure if you can get good or newer translations of the Bibles from the original Aramaic these days, or if we still have the the knowledge to make a good translation of it nowadays. So we're basically stuck with a book that has been translated back and forth a couple of dozen times at least. And we're not sure what was originally in there. Well, another question too is when it was compiled, because many of the different books of the Bible were, say, a specific letter, like Thessalonians was a letter to the people of Thessalonia, an example like that, where there are documents that were written by someone who was of high spiritual standing, but they weren't originally written necessarily with the intention of being part of the Bible, at least not from the author at the time. It's like you're writing a message to the people of some church or some town with the intention of getting a point across, but it wasn't like, uh, oh, this is going to make the New Testament. At least I would guess not. (laughs) Nah, it'd be weird. On the other hand, it's um, fairly common for philosophical texts or the collected works of philosophers to include letters because for the most part, they convey a point they're trying to make a lot better than having to read a thick book, um, trying to bring the logical argument for a point. So let's say when Nietzsche wrote his letters, he's writing to a friend and he's trying just to bring the point across. This is, I think this because of that. And I don't have to put all the, the thinking that goes into that because you're talking with a friend and it doesn't really matter how you got to that conclusion, but just, hey, I wanted to tell you that maybe it's not the best thing to, to feel bad for others. Or maybe Christian morality doesn't work as well as we think it does. And so the including letters in philosophical works is nice because they're this condensed version of an idea and bringing it across kind of similar to what we do here to make it as easy to understand as possible and not go into the spicy philosophical talk. So that's basically the reason why Romans was my favorite book of the Bible. It was a more condensed and straightforward guide for how to live a good Christian life without as many of the weird stories that are hard to interpret and understand. It was more like, in this situation, do this. You should think like this. You should talk like this. You should act like that. So it was more straightforward and less mysterious, which I enjoyed as a young Christian lad. Uh, So Angelic brings up a interesting point that um, people that do Bible bashing refer to the letters more so than to um, the story of Christ himself, which makes sense because the letters are in there in their quote unquote original form, while the the story of Christ is a compelled story. So there was a story writer um, putting this out and he probably went through a lot more editing than someone writing a letter. So, 
medieval philosophy is the school of scholasticism. Um, and the word scholar, as we know it, comes from the scholastic school. So it's the, the origin of that term. And it had a huge impact on how we do philosophy and how we think about philosophy in the Western tradition. It's similar to what the Chinese were already doing about a thousand years before we started with scholasticism, which is to take an old text and look at that text, look at additional sources for that text and do an interpretation of it. So what um, Bofius was doing, this was the um, modus operandi for philosophy going forward. And something we're still doing, not with the Christian flavoring to it, but still we're looking at an original text. We're looking at everyone that commented on that text and trying to get conclusions on what they were thinking at the time and how this applies to nowadays. And we have to thank the Christian church for that because they really put this method into place for the Western tradition, at least. Thanks, Christian tradition. And this is something that did some good and some bad for philosophy. So we have different philosophers over time that either went with that tradition, Kant being a good example, that really went into detail about who thought what and why and why this is wrong. Kant was really good with telling people why they were wrong and going on for ages. And then there's other people uh, like Nietzsche that just came in and, all right, I'm here now and this is what I have to say. I don't care what anyone before me said. Or at least I'm not going to comment on it as much. Mm. Yeah, and the scholastic work, as I said before, was mainly about gathering the different ideas and putting them into this framework that made sense, logical sense from a Christian perspective and was not open to interpretation. So something is good because it's good, because God told us it's good. And one of the biggest things they were trying to do, and we'll get into with a couple of different examples, is to logically define the existence of God to make it, um, to define why God has to exist, which is quite a task. And there's different um, versions of this, but we're going to start with Anselm of Canterbury. So an English, um, what's the term? He was head of the church at the time or of his um, clergy. Bishop Cardinal. Bishop, I guess. So he was the Bishop of Canterbury, and he wanted to come up with something that would make it necessary that God exists. And we'll, we'll go into why that is a problem in the first place, like that the, the, the notion he, he set out for his work is problematic. 
So Anselm said that God is the greatest thing we can think of. Like there's nothing better than God. So think of something super great. Okay. Now what God is better than that. Oh man. <laughs> That's impressive. <laughs> Wait, let me think of something else. Okay, I just thought of something else. Yeah, he's also better than that. Oh man. So that's the, the first premise is God is the greatest thing we can think of. The second premise is things can either exist in our imagination or they can exist in reality. And things that exist in reality are always better than things only existing in our imagination. Therefore, if God existed only in our imagination, he wouldn't be as great as a God that would also exist in reality. And since God is the greatest thing there is, God must exist in reality. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Do you see a problem with that line of argumentation? Yeah, could run into some issues, I could imagine. So the biggest problem with this is that we're presupposing God. God has to exist and is the greatest thing there is. Two things we're not quite sure about. So if God exists, this is okay. If God really is the greatest thing we can think of, this line of argumentation works. Um, give me a second, please. Okay. How would you be able to decide that reality is better than imagination? Yeah, it does seem like an opinion thing, but I would guess that there are certain categories where you could say that it is necessarily better, such as you could imagine tasty food, but if you can't eat it, is it actually worth that much? That's an interesting thing to consider. It's this explanation by Descartes. Dude is clearly not listening, Lamo. We had a pretty intense poll here. I'm not sure who's missing, but we're in combat. Welcome back. Hello. Sorry, I had to get some information about moving. I have to put all the things back into the fridge because otherwise they will defreeze. That's an important, important stuff. <laughs> um, wait, wait, wait. Um, Anselm of Canterbury and his argument for God. Yeah, so if we, if we assume that God exists and God is the greatest thing, this line of argumentation works. Since we're not sure about the first two premises he set out to be, it's somewhat problematic. And this has been pointed out by a bunch of different scholars over the time. And one of which was Thomas of Aquinas. So we have a Italian monk this time. And roughly 500 years later, he um, saw Anselm's argument and thought, well, yeah, this doesn't work as well as he put it. But uh, Aquinas believed in God too, so he wanted to come up with a better argument. And 
he made it fivefold. So better than have one argument for God, you straightforward go for five arguments. And his first argument um, was, and um, the first four of his arguments are called the cosmological arguments. And then there's a fifth one, which we'll go into a bit later. Um, his first argument was the argument for motion. So if we see something moving, we know that there was a need for something that to put it into motion. So there's a mover and something that's being moved. So all motion had to start somewhere. Who is the prime mover? And who is the prime mover, exactly. So someone or something had to be the first thing to put something into motion. If that's not the case, we have eternal uh, regress, which would mean that there's it goes on, on for infinity, and that didn't make sense for Aquinas. It doesn't make sense for our understanding of the world since we have the Big Bang as the um, prime mover. There might be movement before that, but we'll, we'll never know about that. And we will never know what, um, what caused the Big Bang. But for the motion, as far as we know it, the Big Bang was the cause. So there was a big explosion and every motion started on with that singularity from which the Big Bang, bang came from. So God is the prime mover. He was the first one to put things into motion because if there was no one to put it into motion, nothing would move. Does that make sense? An object at rest must stay at rest until acted upon by an outside force. So since things are moving, something must have moved them. Yes. Inertia yes. is a property so we'll of matter. Yeah, it's, it has this scientific touch to it. So it, it, it goes with our understanding of physics that something that um, has a momentum, something was there to put momentum into the thing. So God is the prime mover. He put motion into things. The second argument <coughs> is the argument from causation. And it's a very similar argument to the argument from motion. And it says that everything that is had to be caused by something. So everything had to be created, not just whether it's resting or it's moving, something needs to be there to put it into place. Otherwise, there's, there would be nothing. If no one is there to put things somewhere, the things would um, defreeze and not be in the freezer. It's true. Somebody's going to do it. <laughs> and 
So God in this in this argument being the prime causer. So he was the one who causes everything and he was the one who moved everything or started the movement for everything. And this is then all have, to contrast with a steady state sort of universe and I believe that fits more of the Greek idea where it is and it always has been. So it didn't necessarily have a starting point that you need to figure out. It wasn't um, a, concern, a concerns of theirs, how this came into be. They went into it, like some people went into it, but for the most part, we can assume that the world is because we have a good amount of evidence for the world existing. Um, to come back to the topic from last time, the world existing in a sphere shape, not in a flat shape, just to make that sure. <laughs> You're going to piss off the flat earthers, dude. <laughs> no, I, I can live with that. Um, the Greeks did know so, some funny things, though, that go very contrary to uh, Christian ideas. So, the, or modern Christian ideas. Like, the, the beliefs we hold now as Christians or in any belief, they're not necessarily the original form, but they're consolidated as well. They're w what we've been told to believe, basically. It's not necessarily what the original text said. It's the uh, mainstream interpretation of said texts. And one of the things that the Greeks noticed that are very contrary to the belief of creationists is that when they went on mountains, they found that there were fossils of fish up on mountains, which led them to believe that at some point everything was covered uh, by water. So if everything was covered by water, there were likely no humans. But there were fish already. So they came up with the conclusion that most probably humans evolved from fish. With some extra steps in between. Which is quite the knowledge for the time. And turned out not to be too wrong. Well, by evolution through natural selection, humans and fish share a common ancestor, I think. If you go far enough back. I'm not even sure if they said um, that we evolved from fish, but they said that we come from the water, which is a similar argument, I guess. Um... So the third argument that uh, Aquinas came up with is the argument from contingency. Did we do that already? Did I talk about contingency or cause? You're talking about prime mover. Prime mover and prime causer. What is the contingency one? Uh, it's that things exist, which is, I might be, um, 
they're basically the same argument for me. So that's why I'm confusing them. <laughs> um, so everything had to be, be cost and everything had to be. So contingency is about its existence while the cause it is about it having a purpose basically. And since there are things, things had to come from somewhere and God was the one to put them into place. So again, we go um, back to the notion of infinite regress and that Aquinas didn't want there to be infinite regress because that is something that doesn't go well with the Christian ideology for the first part. And it also doesn't go well with our understanding of how the world works. It's something that would be as, as anything infinite, it's not something we can grasp. So we want there to be someone or something that put everything into place, um, caused the universe, caused um, movement to happen, and just caused things to be there. I think the search for a reason for things, if I had to guess at it, is kind of innately human. It's not something that has to be taught to someone. A child has a lot of curiosity in that sense. We don't need yeah, to be it's, told it's to be something curious. We... <laughs> it's something that we're really good at to put meaning into things, although there doesn't necessarily need to be meaning in there. And it's a difficult task because we're very much limited to language to convey the points we're trying to make. And while language is very practical for everything um, we can grab or um, get a hold of, like go get me some water or put stuff into the freezer, it's something that is not very abstract. It's something that you can put the right meaning into everyone knows what you're saying, provided they speak the same language and you know what to do. But if I tell you um, there's something out there that is outside of our understanding, it's the best thing there is, it's the greatest thing there is, interpretation of that is a bit more difficult. It's not something that you can ha uh, get a hold of. So the more abstract the points we're trying to, to get across are getting, the more difficult or the more uh, individual the interpretation is. There's little interpretation on putting stuff into the fridge. Yep. It's plainly visible. You can see the progress of that. That makes me think of defining what heaven is because when I was in church, people had quite a few different interpretations of what it was. Some people thought it would be something very pleasant for you and kind of your best existence manifested. And some people felt like it was more of a place for you to praise God, which you wouldn't know what that was like other than for his glory. And then some people even got into specifics of 
different clouds and rooms and levels and all this kind of thing. But it's not quite as easy to just point and look at and study like putting stuff into the freezer. Yeah. So two questions about that with the, the second point where you heaven is just a place to praise God. So the idea is to praise God as much as we can um, during our lifetime so we can get to heaven to keep praising God. Well, you might get front row seats instead of being in the upper section. All right. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't sound worth it to box me. seats <laughs> box seats dude think about it it's catered <laughs> and the first argument which i find interesting because it, it kind of used to be my idea of what heaven was is your best existence but how do you f define that like what is your best existence like if you die at 95 years old would you be in your 20s or in your 30s when you get to heaven or appearing to be would you have the thoughts of a 90 year old or the thoughts of a 20 year old because there's a big difference and i'm not sure you're necessarily happier or better off with having that 75 years of extra knowledge there could be a character creation screen dude you don't know Ooh, that'd be nice yeah but then you're not the same, like it's your soul, but you're something completely different. No, it's still your soul. That would just be your avatar. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. I've thought about it a lot. It's a fun thing. So how I would imagine it is to just have this huge playground. It's the, the, the island where you can ski down the slope and then go surfing. And the waves are not crowded and always good. You 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 kind of get everything you want. So it's um, you're basically always on a endorphin high because you just get everything you could wish for would be there, which would be an interesting question if that's actually what we want or if the downtime of an endorphin makes the occasional rush even more worthwhile which i think would be something you should know about yeah i've experienced the endorphin rush of having a religious experience i think the first one that really hit me in a very physically powerful way that like sent tingles through my whole body and i felt like i was in the presence of god was at a youth conference so it was a bunch of kids around my age who were all hanging out and enjoying this uh, worship band I'm trying to remember his name I could think about it but it's thousands of people all sharing in these fun songs that are they're not super traditional some of them were based on Christian hymns and things like this, but it's pretty much modern contemporary music. But the energy of the room was really, really intense and people were all very hyped up. And just being in that environment made me feel super close to God and a very strong physical experience there. So if I had to compare it to something that is secular and non-religious, the runner's high 
that I get after I've run for 10 miles or so, 15 to 20 kilometers, where you get a really intense physical rush where it almost feels like you're flying. It's incredibly good. Not the same as lifting. Now, I had one experience like that, but that was when I was already an atheist. And I was going to work at like six in the morning and I had to go to Zurich, so biggest town in Switzerland. And I'm not the type to to go up in the morning and be super excited about uh, going to work. Not that I don't like my job, the job I'm doing, but it's like getting up in the morning, getting there. It's it's not as fun as it could be. Mm. Um, anyways, I was um, riding the bus to the workplace and I saw like 50 people standing in front of a shop and it was an Apple store and they were waiting to get in there to buy whatever new product they have. I think it was a new iPhone or something. Anyways, I was sitting there seeing them and was thinking, there's so many things that would be worse than going to to work now. And the realization from that was like, it's it's my interpretation of things. I, I might not be happy about having to go to work, but there's so many things um, that could be worse than this than having a nice interpretation of it and feeling happy about being allowed to go to work other than having to wait in front of a store for a new phone was super uplifting to me, like a religious experience almost. And what I really took out of that is when you're traveling, you you look out the window more often, you you trying to take in the experience you're trying to to get a grasp of the land you're in of the people and we usually don't do that when we're on our daily commute we're not interested with the things we've seen a thousand times before although they might have changed and they're still interesting it's the the our natural surroundings and to going out with this traveler's kind of mindset and just being open to all the experiences is what I took out of that. So basically being happy with what you're doing, even though it might not the things you would have chosen to do, because there's almost always worse things you could be doing and just being super open to the experience and just taking in as much as you can and trying to get the best out of it. Yeah, that sounds to me like mindfulness, the awareness of where you are relative to where others could be and having a also present gratitude, which can be religious in nature, can also be secular in nature. Yeah. There is a part of the Bible, something about praying without ceasing, that really stuck with me, where for you to meditate and contemplate and connect, it doesn't have to be after a certain ritual. It doesn't have to be in a certain room or under certain conditions. You can kind of do that spiritual check-in with yourself at any point. And sometimes it can be really valuable to 
do that sort of introspection and check in, especially if you're stressed out. Yeah, that was one other thing for me um, that there's a lot of um, power you can get out of faith, like knowing that there is something out there that put meaning into your life, knowing that there is someone that looks over you and only has your best um, only has the best intentions. Mm -hmm. Maybe not for the individual, but for humanity as a whole. It's something that can be super uplifting. It can be super powerful. But from my point of view, um, where God doesn't exist, that power still needs to come from somewhere. So if it's not from an outside source, it's something that's just within us. And it's something you can tap into whenever you want to or need to. And you don't have to believe in anything being out there for this to work. Mm -hmm. so this is the faith in your own mind and your the, the, the place you have in the world, which you can have as a secular thinker as well. The really reassuring thing about the Christian perspective on that is that you have a benevolent God who's basically going to sort out everything in the end, even if justice is not served on this earth by humans in our own courts and stuff, it will eventually be served. And also good people will be rewarded because oftentimes the best works that are done, many people don't know about and people are all yammering about gossip and drama in the news, but you have some people quietly doing good work. Heaven and God is kind of a way to balance all those scales, which is, a really nice thought yeah that's true on the other hand I, i'm not sure whether uh, an eternity of punishment or reward for anything is a, a measured response so it, we're it, it seems like there's a lot of value put on the 80 years we have in this life that we're determined an eternity afterwards which yeah that they at least should put god should have put better manuals for us to know how to live life like something that isn't as open to interpretation um that would have been nice yeah just one because otherwise one book etched into titanium so it wouldn't be destroyed you couldn't burn it so there's just one clearly correct document but that's not faith though that's evidence. No. Nah. Uh, I think the Ten Commandments get as close to that as possible. So these were directly conveyed by God to Abraham. Moses. Was it Abraham? No, Moses. Moses. Yes. So we have ten directions on how to live our life but they're still not as useful as you would like them to be. You know a bunch of things not to do, and you know a bunch of things to do, which is basically praise God. So praising God, not stealing, not um, murdering, and you're okay. There's a lot of leeway within that. There's a lot of things you can do, which we wouldn't consider to be moral, but don't go, again, the uh, 
tend to against the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so the, the just the directions we got after um, character creations were not as good. It seems like we're in a Dark Souls kind of game where you have to eat, read the item descriptions in order to get any sense of what's happening. God, do you have a better written build order for life? If so, could you please send it to us? Amen. We're unclear on a lot of really important things. Please give a More blue likely post. Likely always be. <laughs> um, so the argument from contingency. Um, there are uh, contingent things. Contingent things can cause other contingent things, but there can't only be contingent things. So there are contingent things, they cause other contingent things, but it can't be that they're only contingent things. You gotta have more than one ingredient in the soup. Exactly. <laughs> and so, if there were only contingent things, there'd be uh, infinite regress of contingency, which is not possible. Therefore, um, God must exist, and he is the one necessary thing that there is. Uh, maybe I need to, to define contingency. So contingent, something that's contingent is something that's necessary. So while we all think that our life is important and that we're the best version of ourselves, hopefully, um, we're not necessary. You mean an individual is not crucial to the overall spiritual narrative? Not any narrative. Like, the world would go on without us. And it will go on without us. Mm -hmm. Likely. I'm not quite sure about that. I think I'll take the universe with me when I die, but I can't be sure about that. <laughs> um, so th there are things that are... are people in this case that are necessary and there are people that are not necessary. And this doesn't matter if you're um, someone big in, in the picture, like um, someone that changed a lot of things like George Washington. He's also not necessary. Things would be a lot different without him, but he's not necessary to the universe existing. I don't know if I would so have set off as many fireworks without George Washington. Exactly. <laughs> um, so there are beings that are contingent and there are beings that are not, which is all the rest of them. There's only one being that is contingent, that is God. So there needs to be a God because there needs to be a God. So it's a bit of a flawed argument. Anyways, that's the argument from contingency. And then we have number four, um, argument from degrees. And this is where he um, directly goes into what Anselm was saying. So um, everything we know comes in different degrees. It comes with different sizes. It comes with different levels of awesomeness. 
It comes with uh, different amounts of cannons per pylon when you start your natural. So everything comes in degrees. And in order to measure something, we always need something to measure it against. So if you see an animal and it's two feet large, you say, well, that's an average sized dog, but it's a huge rat. So a two feet rat is giant, two feet dog, somewhere mid-size. But you have to have an idea of the average size rat or dog in order to measure it against. So in order to be able to measure anything, you need to have a best version of it. And I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Forms. <laughs> Um, in order to, to measure something's perfection, you need something that is perfect to measure it against. What about Jesus being the perfect life? Um, I thought that's where you might be going with this, but maybe not. I, I was thinking of Jesus versus God and whether what's the, the difference there. And Jesus was much more a human. So it, it makes it more understandable for us. And I'm not super familiar with everything he did or didn't do. I think he lived a rather well life, like based on the, on the religious teachings. Well, calling it perfect, I think, is a bit far fetched. That's what they call. Like he, I'm just, I'm just reporting that. <laughs> That's what I. I mean, I'm just saying, if you're the most perfect human being, existing is better than not existing, as we heard before. So dying in your thirties is kind of a bit of a no-no. He could have went on till eighty and heal a bunch more things and make a bunch more fish and everything that Jesus did for fifty more years and then do the whole dying and being reborn um, thing. Yeah, so his early game was so, good, but there was no mid and late game, and we're kind of bummed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, since existing, the perception for myself and a lot of Christians, I think, is that. Christ is more of a gentle temperament of God, and the Old Testament God is a more aggressive and hot and vengeful God. So they're considered aspects of the same whole. Some branches of Christianity, I think, treat them as separate entities, where the Holy Ghost, Christ, and God are three separate actors, versus others who say they're three different manifestations of the same entity. Yeah, that was something they were working on during the Middle Ages as well, because that's contradiction, if you ever heard of contradiction. Yeah, there's three things, but it's one, it's this one three-folded thing. It's not something we can really grasp. And they tried their best to, to um, make this as easy to understand as possible, but we're still struggling with this notion. So I guess they didn't do the best job in that regard. I think people have different aspects, though. If you think about how the same person can behave differently depending on who they're with, 
it's still them, but they can be a lot more kind and gentle. They could be a lot more hostile and aggressive, even if it's the same individual. It's related to the room and the situation. So I think a lot of people consider God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit to be kind of like that. Like it's God put into different situations, God put into human form, God put into spirit form, God put into whatever. So are you trying to say that people are different in Twitch chat than they are in real life? Yes, and you could also measure that difference too, because some people are pretty similar to their real life persona. Some people are very different. They only let out one of their aspects and not their public facing self. Yeah, yeah I think the, the problem arises with um, us trying to put things in a physical form and having the trinity of God being three separate physical entities, in quote, um, but being the same thing makes it really difficult to us to understand. I think that's where the, the problem arises. Mm. But when you think about Protoss, they are many, like the, the Protoss, when they still were connected to the color, they all had the same mind, basically. Um, they shared a collective consciousness, just... yeah. Yeah, so it was one consciousness shared over everyone. So they're basically one, even though they're separate entities. So the, we, we have theories for this now. And I think we could think of God in that sense. But it, it's still confusing. I didn't really have that much issue with it. That wasn't really a, a point that was confusing to me. I basically thought about God as main form is him. Sort of a similar aesthetic to Zeus, who's in like clouds and stuff. And he's got nice throne, bunch of nice angels around, stuff like that. Carrying out his business and he can look down on the world. And then there's the ghost version, which is kind of like the apparition that would be around you giving you courage or strength in a period of difficulty or helping you resist temptation in that kind of situation but that would be the more local one and then christ is more of the person who lived in the world and is also inside of you in your mind and spirit guiding you from within that was my perception maybe other christians in the chat okay. could say if that's close to yours or not if you believe in that in the trinity so for me it would have been um god as zeus as you put it i'm not sure whether i thought he was the one uh, making lightnings or if he lost that ability in the transition between um being a roman god and being a christian god I remember that I was taught that lightnings were caused when um, clouds crash into each other. We were told that it was God bowling. <laughs> when we were scared of the thunder. Oh, it's okay. God's just bowling. He's loud. <laughs> He's got a really big bowling alley up in heaven. And then... Jesus being the physical manifestation of God and what you said, like Jesus being within us, that would have been the Holy Spirit for me. Mm -hmm. 
like having the essence of God that was manifested in Jesus that can also be a part of you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure if we talked about this before, but the um, how we came from the wrathful God that thought um, floating a whole world was a good idea and that there's no problem with inbreeding if you just put two of each species on a boat and then repopulate the world. Um, to the God we know nowadays, which is more benevolent, did we talk about this transition? No, not really. Not really why it happened. It's a pretty clear distinction from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There are definitely instances in the Old Testament where God is merciful or gracious and things like this, but the the overall kind of average tone of Christ versus the Old Testament God is very different. And I don't think there's overlap in authorship. There's a time gap between the last book of the Old Testament and the first one of the New Testament, right? I don't know what that is offhand. Yes. Uh, I want to say six, seven hundred years. So the Old Testament is we. It's difficult to date it, but I think the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated somewhere like seven hundred BC. And the New Testament was written after, I want to say, two hundred years after Christ was dead. Like is the first version we know it. Mm-hmm which should put some um, some problems with how well they knew what Christ was doing 200 years after. I mean, I barely know what I had for breakfast yesterday. Well, it's easy when you have oatmeal every morning. <laughs> That's true. <coughs> yeah, so what happened in between was Zoroastrianism. Um, basically, Um, Christianity as we know it um, came from a similar place uh, geographically as Zoroastrianism so we're um, in Persia and and Babylon they apparently had the overlap of the what we know as Christian faith now and uh, Zoroastrianism and Zoroastrianism had this really awesome benevolent god Ashura Mazda that was the all good that caused everything and made everything in his likeness and there was the devil uh, Ariman that was the opposite of god and he was trying to destroy everything and be the anti-creation basically and when these two got into contact, um, what we now know as Christianity took a lot, a lot from Zoroastrianism in terms of the way they look at God and what God should be like. Because, as you said, it's nicer to have a nice God than to have a indifferent or wrathful God. Yeah, life is pretty harsh, so people were looking more for relief rather than punishment i think people get punished enough just with illness and the evil of other people you want god to be on your side for sure yeah so how philosophy treated god 
during most other time was um, most philosopher, Greek philosophers acknowledged the gods, whether this was out of a necessity to not go against existing beliefs and just acknowledging, all right, there are gods, but they're, they're not important to our case. Um, or if they truly believed in the gods and still made their philosophy outside of the realm of the gods is something that's up to interpretation. I think the first one would be um, would make more sense because if you believe in the gods already, you would shape it a bit more. Um, like you're not looking for reasons if you have someone that caused reason in the first place. But the Greeks got, Greek gods were a lot different to the um, Christian god. The Greek gods were more like this um, heavenly beings that were basically human in their traits, but had some more powers. So they were like protos, kind of. They're superheroes. Superman, Wonder Woman, where they had similar flaws and evils and desires and stuff and there was drama like human communities would have drama yeah and the greek gods there being many of them causing different things um made them a lot more tangible they were kind of like humans but better they did a bunch of weird stuff they did mostly weird stuff and that's kind of what's passed down to us, and it gives um, reason for why there's lightning, for example. And it, it, it's a neat way to put um, to bring our understanding of the level to know why things are happening, even though it might not be the best explanation for it. Um. Yeah, and the scholasticism basically took these different ideas from the Greeks, the Romans, and the Norse tradition, and to put them together, like get the different concepts as far as they were aware of it, because there was a lack of books they had at the time. Um, they took these different traditions and really trying to put them, forcefully put them into a Christian framework. So how did all this happen if there's only one God that caused everything? That, all right. That is so, an interesting aspect of Christianity and religion as well is if you look at the local practice and interpretation of a religion, it often has some local customs or aspects weave into it. Where if the local people like a certain tradition and a thing, it'll be woven into a Christian tradition in some way. Well, yeah, that's true, but it actually still connects to Christ and God. And they'll maintain yeah. that, but it doesn't really spread because it came from that local culture. Um, one good example for this is again Zoroastrianism, which is a had a huge impact on all monotheistic religions. 
And I'm not sure what time this was or how this exactly came to be, but basically the um, what we now know as the Muslim faith um, took over a part of Persia and took over a bunch of uh, Zoroastrian believers. And they told them, well, you now have a new God. This is our God. He is better than your God. And if you want to stay alive, you better believe in our God. My God can beat up your God. <laughs> and the Zoroastrians took this rather well. They said, well, yeah, we're, we'll pray to your God. That's all right. But there's a small issue we have. So you usually pray to your God three times a day. We pray to our God seven times a day. Whoa. So would it be okay to you that we keep on our local custom and praying to now your God seven times a day, not just three times? And they were like, all right, we'll do that. And so now in Muslim faith, you have to pray seven times to God each day. And this is just basically a Zoroastrian implementation of Muslim faith and then taking over in the whole Muslim world. Maybe it's five. There was a question earlier. Does the speaker think that humans have a divine palace over all other organisms or that every life form shares the same energy source or God? Do you think humans are above animals? I think that has mixed responses within Christianity from people I've met. Some people say that we're above them and we're supposed to be the keepers of the planet and all this, and others say that we are one with creation. Yeah, so since I don't believe in a god, I don't think um, I can answer this in a simple form. So I think that there's a lot of different degrees to this. Are we above animals? I would say so, just in terms that we we are the apex predator now. We are the the species that does a bunch of weird stuff that no other species has ever tried before. We actively shape the face of the planet for better or worse. So we are above animals and what we can do and what we will do. Does this make us above animals in a moral sense? I don't think so. I would put us below to some degree, just because we are, um, as Plato made the distinction, we are the rational animal. We, we can put, um, we have language so we can rationalize things. But we don't necessarily use it for the quote-unquote best cause. So we can rationalize stupid things. So we have a lot more awareness of what's happening around us, how things work together, and we make conclusions from that based on what we want for the most part or what we want for others in some cases. But we're still, we're, we're shaping the planet and we're, we can do a lot of things. We could do a lot of things differently. So we're, we're above animals in what we can do. We're 
same level or even below animals in terms of what we use that for. Yeah, we're capable of great good and great evil now. To quote Daniel Dennett, I think he said, we wield the paintbrush. We have the ability to create and destroy on a scale unlike anything else. Yeah. Is that good or we bad? We are becoming as God. Mm-hmm. To quote Nietzsche, uh, if there were gods, how could I bear not being one of them? I want to be with the gods too. <laughs> now, I hope that answered the questions. Or the question. Um, back to Aquinas. So these are his four first four arguments, the cosmological arguments. So the argument from motion, so God being the prime mover, the argument from causation, God being the prime causer, the argument from contingency, God being the thing that put things into place in the first place. I think I can't say that because if there then would have been a place before that. It's difficult. Um, yes, something had to be there in order to put things there. But if there already was something, why put things? Because there already was. It doesn't really make sense. Um, and fourthly, the argument from degrees. Since we have to measure everything against something else, there ought to be something that is perfect, that perfect being being God. God is the best. Exactly. One thing that was a fun meme of this character I'm playing now, Nura, is that what if God was a goddess? I think most of the major religions have a male or at least male pronoun, God. Are there examples of ones that have a goddess instead? Um, I don't think there's a monotheistic religion that has a um, female god, but when it was polytheistic, like Mother Earth and the earth goddess it's a really common theme so for the longest of time most of people believed um a female or a mother to give birth to everything which makes more sense men don't really give birth to things we we are good at destroying things for the most part yeah well assigning gender is interesting because why would God be in that human form for creating something like galaxies in the universe and stuff? It's just on a scale so large and hot and cold and stuff that being a biped is like, why? Why are you a bipedal God? <laughs> it just comes from our need to understand things. And that's the, the easiest shape we could, could have put it onto him, I guess. The, or at least the one we understand most. If we would make God to be as a cat, we don't understand cats and why they do things. So it'd be more difficult to understand why he wanted to move things or cause things. 
Yeah. So we have the prime mover, the prime causer, the most awesome thing that created everything. This is a solid argument for God, more or less, but it has some problems. First one being, well, is this one God? Is this many gods? Is this the Christian God? Or was it Zeus? Was it Ashura Mazda? Like, it doesn't really answer that question. It could be any god. It doesn't necessarily need to be the Christian god. It's totally alone. So, exactly. So Aquinas' argument was a good argument for a god, but not a specific god, which is a bit problematic if you want to put the notion into people that there is one true god. And it doesn't necessarily need to be one. It could be... Um, the prime mover could be a different god than the prime causer, which would be closer to a polytheistic belief where you have different gods for for different um, tasks, which is kind of similar to people where not everyone has the same set of skills, so people do different things. We've got a team of specialists versus one ultimate who does everything. Specialists are easier to relate to. And so we have the last argument from Aquinas. And this is the what we understand as creationism nowadays. So imagine you're um, walking through the forest and you find a clock. The, one of those beautiful old pocket watches. And you look at the clock and you see it has a bunch of moving parts. It does something. It probably takes some time to, to figure out what it does. Because if you haven't seen a clock before, it's, I think, it, yeah, it would take some time to understand what it is for and how to use it. But you, you'd see a clock and you think of the clock, well, this is something that is useful, it has purpose. It was definitely created by someone for this purpose. So the existence of a clock necessitates a clockmaker. And going by that logic, if there needs to be a clockmaker for a clock, there ought to be a universe maker for a universe. Makes sense to me. iPhones don't just sprout out of the ground. If someone did make a plant that did that, they would be very wealthy. <laughs> Environmentally conscious yeah, iPhone production. Grown from tubers. <laughs> yeah, the problem with this argument is that we're um, like the clock having purpose because it was created for that purpose is a good argument. Therefore, a need for a clockmaker does work. The problem with the argument is that we're um, superimposing a purpose on the universe which is not necessarily the case. 
And if there is no purpose, there doesn't necessarily need to be someone that calls this purpose. Having a purpose gives me mental security though. I have one, thanks. It is nice. Even on aside from religion, I think the quest for purpose is an ongoing one that's pretty high difficulty in life. It's pretty sad if you feel like what you do is futile and tedious or it could be overturned and you're not making a real lasting impact on the world. And also if you don't feel valued by other people. It can suck quite a bit. Why are you here? Why do you do the things that you do? It's an important question. What is it all building toward? Yeah, I think that it's the biggest quest we have in life is to find a good source of a purpose or to even harder give our own life purpose. And it's something that was written about a lot and is not something to take lightly. I think what we tend to do is to try to forget that we ought to have purpose and distract us as much as we can, just in order not to have to think about that or not to have work towards that. Mm. It's heavy stuff and it doesn't always yield like exciting and happy results when you're trying to figure that out. You don't really treat it like a pleasure activity of, oh yeah, what are you gonna do Saturday? I'm just gonna sit down on the couch and think about my purpose. Oh, really? That's that's pretty wild. You're a party animal. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's the basis of philosophy to some degree, like people sitting down thinking about the purpose and then people getting drunk and talking to friends about the purpose and what they think and how to what made more sense. And it's something I really like to do with people, just to sit down, not necessarily talk about what they want to do in life or um, ask the um, question of where will you be in 10 years, which is super awful. Yeah. I will say that whenever I moved away from Christianity, that also meant conceding heaven. So there's no eternity of bliss and fun and joy. And that was kind of like, shit, mortality, okay. <laughs> what is the, <laughs> is there a positive spin to this? Like, how can I think about this in a way that I actualize and I'm happy with what I do and what my life is for? And the way that I think about it is kind of like playing a beautiful song. A song is temporary, it's finite, but it's still worth playing. And your story is a narrative that has echoes and ripples throughout other people's lives, and it's kind of a, a beautiful artistic thing in a way. Everyone's story is unique. You are the main character of your life story. And you want to try to make that as good of a story as you can. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm trying to find a um, video game analogy for the need for a time limit, but um, may maybe in chess um, where you depending on the setup, have a certain amount of time, which can range between, 
I want to say 10 or 15 seconds you have to, to move a piece to a couple of days because you're writing letters back and forth. Um, but if there was no limit on um, when to move your chess piece, the game would likely go on forever because you could think about your strategy for so long that it would be super boring for your chess partner to play with you. Mm-hmm. So I think having a time limit is something that is gives purpose in and of itself because you have limited time to do things and you kind of have to figure out what you want to use that time for. And if there was no time limit, you could do anything at any given time and it wouldn't make any difference because you like all the things you wanted to do yesterday, you might as well do in a million years because it, it doesn't make a difference. You're saying you would roll human over elf? You think it's better? Uh, I would rather be an elf and live for like 3,000 years. I take that over 100 easy. I think having a, a longer time period would be nice. I was uh, when you asked the question, I was more thinking about physical properties um, within the same lifespan. Mm. And elves can walk over snow. So being this light, I'm not sure snowboarding would still be fun. So I might do 80 years as a human just to have some fun snowboarding. Nice. <laughs> this was my snowboarding but, century. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, otherwise I'm not super familiar with uh, elven lore and what would change for me if I were to be an elf. I would totally be an elf. Normally I gravitate toward elf characters in general. Uh, was it Grimdark the Bard of Age of Anthems was an elf? With Call, I'm playing a Kenku, which is pretty funny. I like birds too. Avian characters are cool to me. There's a bird character in My Hero Academia. Tangent, but well, ha- having flight is a really nice skill. They can't fly though. Their god took their flight away. Actually, speaking of gods, their origin story involves a god, and they used to be able to write sacred texts and sing songs, but they didn't have normal speech. It was all sung, and they delved into some forbidden texts, and their god took away their wings and they can no longer fly and now they can only mimic the voices of other characters they don't have their own personal individual voice and they also seem to have forgotten the name of their god it is not known who their god originally was but apparently they were not very forgiving yeah it sounds like that so this brings us um, to one of many problems of evil Um, so this god he obviously had knowledge of the forbidden texts he enabled the writing of said texts if he wasn't the guy to put them there in the first place and his response to someone reading these texts is to punish everyone with a rather cruel punishment because flightless birds are stupid in my opinion Um, I mean, I'm not going to go fight an ostrich. I think. Fair enough. I think we need to beat somebody up. (laughs) 
They're like raptors. That's what birds are. Do they hunt in packs as well? I don't think they're very smart. I think that's their <laughs> downside. They're really fast and their talons are really sharp and they have a lot of force in their kicks and they, when they claw with that. But yeah, they're pretty stupid relative to other animals. They're probably not going to strategize against you. <laughs> <laughs> but if they give you a hatbot, there's not much need for strategy. No, nope. it's it's the 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 first best response to to a human that walks up to you. Just give him a headbutt. I'll be fine. Yep. Taking a look through chat if something worth talking about came up. Um, if Christianity had any solid foundation, it would be a science, not a religion. Um, yeah, that's that difficult claim to make. I'd say that what, what's your definition of solid foundation and, and how to uh, have a solid foundation for something that is outside of our realm of understanding, both physically and mentally? So one could argue that there is as good um, scientific evidence as there can be for a god. But the notion of religion being something that requires faith, which is trust in something that we can't base on our understanding of science, Christianity will always be a religion and there cannot be a religion that is based on science. There's different degrees on how a religion can um, work with our understanding of science. And Buddhism is really good at this, where they do their best at incorporating our understanding um, of the world scientifically with their understanding of the world um, religiously. And Christianity, for the most part, didn't do the best job at that. It's getting better, though, I think. People in the chat are saying that I'm Christian and I'm just struggling to admit it. Trust me, I I tried. I actually had a really positive upbringing through the church. A lot of people move away from a religion because there was something bad that people did within their church group. My youth through Christianity was really smooth and I wanted to be a pastor when I grew up because I really respected the spiritual leadership of the pastor, the importance of that role and how it's helping guide everyone's spiritual development. So what higher calling is there than that if God is real and true and the Bible is correct? So when I went to university, this is kind of telling a little bit of my move away from it, I wanted to unify science and Christianity and connect all the dots. And I know there was a ton of debate and stuff about it, but I hadn't entered that debate. I just wanted to solve the problem and then write a book about it. Makes sense. Yeah. Think you, you were not the first one that tried that. No, I don't think so. <laughs> there were probably dozens or thousands or millions. 
people want to make sense of their reality and a lot of science makes a lot of sense i mean you can demonstrate things in chemistry lab that you wouldn't have known intuitively and cause reactions that are basically magic in how they look but it's just the way that reality works so similarly you want to also have a spiritual understanding of yourself and the why and christianity provides a lot of that there isn't really as much spiritual guidance for science and this is maybe moving into the realm of philosophy of understanding the why of everything and how you're not really out in a field measuring that that's more of a quest within consciousness and understanding that's an interesting uh, thing to um, the the notion of measuring why, like measuring as we talked about with the um, the argument from the degrees. In order to measure something, you need to have a measuring stick, something to compare it to. So measuring a why, like what would you think would a um, a measuring tool that measures the why look like and what would be the result it puts out. So let's um, go with an easy example. Why are you playing WoW right now? So you have this device and it tells you the why. So what would you think the result would be? It is an enjoyable game for me where I can progress on a character in a way that is permanent and also play with my brother, and also play a game that doesn't involve a ton of spam clicking that would mess with this podcast. <laughs> and also I have more room to focus on what you're saying and carrying the conversation. If I had to macro four bases and scout for Zest Snoob, adept into DT all in, I could listen to you, but I would keep up less and contribute less. Yeah. So the measuring stick applied here is you and your perception. Um, so basically you're saying you're playing WoW because it's a nice and worthwhile thing to do while having this discussion. Mm -hmm. Another possible result would be, well, you're playing WoW because you had this upbringing, this caused a chain of reaction that brought you into being a streamer. And as a streamer, you focus on this kind of content. So it's a business decision that you're playing well right now. Another why would be that Blizzard created this game and we can go all the way back to the Big Bang and how everything happened that made um, World of Warcraft being a thing, which would be a rather long why. But this is what caused the, or the why is that the prime causer caused a chain reaction that led to you now playing WoW. So the measuring tool for why can spit out a bunch of different results. And while all of them are true, it's not giving us a why in a sense of purpose. It doesn't give us a why that would be um, applicable to someone else because there's so many different factors to it that there's it's always either someone that 
primarily caused the things to happen as they unfold, or it's just pure randomness that led to it. So it, it doesn't it doesn't answer the question of why. It gives some notions of why it could be or why it is happening right now, but it doesn't give the the fundamental why things came into being. It's a best guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, so we like the measuring stick for why, which makes the quest for the why for the purpose so difficult because there's so many different reasons to do things or to not do things. Yep, life is a game of incomplete information. You can't fully inform all your decisions. You're working with yeah, pieces of evidence it, it, and clues. It's a statistically fair guess that your protoss opponent is kind of rushing. I think that this is a good point that within science, we work with probabilities and things are scientifically um, proven if their probability is high enough. So a apple falling from a tree when it's ripe is something that will happen in all the cases that we've ever studied, so it will likely that it will be, it will continue to be that way. So science is something that we can prove based on um, past evidence and make predictions about the future. With religion or belief, it's first of all it's difficult to have past evidence because it's not the scientific um, form of evidence that we would need, where we have um, 10,000 cases and in these 10,000 cases, it happened 10,000 times. There, in all religions, there was just one guy. He tried one time to create one universe with one planet, with one intelligent species on it. So we, we lack the amount of data to know um, or to necessitate the existence of God scientifically. Yeah, that's something that I wondered growing up was that if God is real and everything is, as he said, in the Bible and stuff, if there are aliens out there, what is his relationship with them like? Because they wouldn't have access to our texts and our teachings. Did he visit them as well? On a separate maybe, region? Maybe he gave them a better version. Maybe. Maybe we can compare notes. Exactly. Um, yeah, so the, the god, uh, as um, Aquinas saw him, the prime mover, prime causer, he would have likely be the one that caused all species in the universe. But it's not the, the same kind of God that we think of that is our um, personal savior and is the um, bipedal thing that kind of watches over us in a spiritual kind of sense. So there, there's different God at, at play here.
looking through my notes to see if we covered everything important. I think we know that God is awesome now, that he caused everything and moved everything. Yeah, I used to be a Christian, then I was an atheist, now I'm a follower of the cult of Illum. AMA. Makes sense. Yep. It's a, it's a logical progression. Yep. Um. Yeah, so I think I'm just going to give a, a quick summary of what we've heard and what happened during medieval times and how this will relate to philosophy going forward. So religion in the Middle Ages or philosophy in the Middle Ages was about religion. So they tried to put everything into the Christian framework and they did so with all the old texts they came across, which wasn't that many. And this profoundly changed our understanding of God. As we talked about before, there's this shift between the old God and the new God um, when Christianity or the the basis of Christian belief uh, came across uh, Zoroastrianism. So the medieval ages and the work of the Christian church, the, the theologians and philosophers of the time, was to give a scientific understanding of what God is like, why God is the way he is, and why all his teachings are as awesome as they are, because he is the prime awesome thing. And this changed a lot in our understanding of how we see God. So before that, we had a um, we didn't have a monotheistic religion. We had a bunch of different gods that were weird guys that were mostly partying or doing other weird stuff. It was something we could grasp. There were different gods doing different things for different reasons. Now there's just one god doing one thing, being God for God knows what reason. But we, for the most part, we got over that. We we understand now that God just is, God created everything and it's everything to his liking. But it took a long time for us to get there um, intellectually. So it was a bunch of different steps we had to take. And the scholastic method of putting things into this framework is the philosophical method in the West going forward. It's basically the same method as the Chinese have been using thousands of years before the Christians. And it's to look at old texts and comparing them to contemporary writers, comparing them to all the notes that have been written, and then trying to make new conclusions out of that. But as I said, uh, medieval philosophy was theology, so their conclusions were always based on the notion that God exists. And philosophy since has moved on from that, and the question whether or not God exists or not has been raised again. 
But since we had this framework put into place on what, how we should think about God, that still um, had a big impact even on the thinkers that thought that God did not exist because the God that did not exist was still the God as defined by the uh, Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. Mm. The perception of God has definitely developed over time. You could even take this further into how Christianity has changed throughout it being in Europe and also moving to the United States and also Latin America and Africa and China. And whenever it changes hands and changes minds, it changes in its interpretation and also the local custom and how people behave and conduct themselves and stuff. They're still going to observe a lot of the local etiquette and communication styles and things like that while integrating Christianity. And it's definitely a popular belief system. It works for a lot of people. We have Christians in the chat who have been listening. Appreciate you being here. We have people who don't believe in any gods in the chat as well. All ideas are welcome. It was fun covering this with you, HF2. Um, I want to say something about what Karmsquid said about um, Christians believing that everyone that lived before Christianity would go to hell, which can be correct based on your interpretation, but for the longest of time, especially during medieval times, we didn't have just heaven and hell. There were different degrees of hell, there were different degrees of heaven, and there was purgatory, which is the in-between kind of state. And for everyone that lived a good life based on Christian ethics, but was of the wrong faith, they went to purgatory. So this was the place to be. All the good people were in purgatory. Also, all the unbaptized children, because they didn't have time to do anything bad yet. And because they were not baptized, they didn't have the right faith yet. So it was impossible to get into heaven in the Christian faith before Christianity was a thing, which is kind of a non sequitur, like before Christianity, how could you get into Christian heaven? It didn't exist yet, neither practically nor theoretically. But yeah, so everyone that was still living a good life got into purgatory and could have parties there. I would have wanted to go to purgatory to meet all the old philosophers. And it's basically something that Dante did in um, the Divine Comedy. It's a book about the seven circles of hell and the seven circles of heaven. And his travels through there. Uh, it's a fairly interesting book. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if there's a text that define the collective perception of heaven the same way that Dante's Inferno shaped our perception of hell? Um, this is not... We don't talk about the heaven part as much anymore 
because the hell part is much more interesting. But Dante went through all the seven circles of hell. He also went through all the seven circles of heaven. And it shaped their perception of both of them. Have you read it? Should I read it? Yes. Should I, I have a... I had read the English translation of it because my um, Italian is not good enough to, to read it in the original. And it is a medieval text, so it's fairly scriptic. It has some really nice quotes, like some, some, some passages are super nice. But overall, the text, I think you're better off reading a synopsis than reading the whole book. Hmm. And hope they put so, some awesome quotes in there. <laughs> Read the cliff notes. Um, exactly. One of them that stands out is when Dante stands at the um, port of hell, like the, the entrance to hell. It has written above it, uh, abandon all hope ye who enters here. Oh boy. I think is That's pretty spooky. Foreboding. Yeah. Then again, he got out. So why would he abandon all hope? He he obviously had hope going through there in order to get out again. They're just fear mongering. It's just tactics. Hell is not that bad. <laughs> they work four day weeks. It's actually pretty decent benefits. <laughs> yeah. So that's as much as I have on. Um, medieval philosophy. There's a bunch more thinkers and people that kind of raise the voice, but for the most part, this is the, the core of what the thinking was. And it was called the Dark Ages in philosophy because there was the one fundamental belief was that there is a God, so we have to shape everything to to make that fit, which is not how you should approach philosophy. It's everything should be open, everything should be reasonable. And if you have something that you you're super sure about, you should question that as well. And we'll go deeply into that going forward, especially with Descartes and how we can presuppose that we exist, which is a good thing to do when you want to think about anything else, because without existence, it wouldn't make much sense but it's something that you need to reason for and not just put as something you you base everything else on an untested belief is pretty weak whether it involves faith or not putting it to the test i think is valuable having some confidence in your perspectives. A lot of people exist in a bubble where their beliefs are not challenged by other people and they also don't challenge them personally and privately, which means that when you do encounter an unexpected challenge, it can take you off guard, you're unprepared, you don't know what to do, and it causes problems. And sometimes people just ignore it and they don't investigate it. It's good to figure things out if you see an opening in your understanding. Yeah. Um, one question about faith. 
So Stargrader says, you'll be big one day, don't lose faith. Um, what's your understanding of faith in, in this regard? Um, is it something that if you, say, were to put in 30, 30 minutes of faith practicing or praising a God, for that matter, um, into having a bigger business or whatever you, you set yourself out to do, would you think that be um, more powerful than using those 30 minutes to actively work towards something? Actually, this kind of ties into Samurai Stream Prep a little bit. I think there is benefit to checking in with yourself and also hyping up your body physically to prepare for a difficult task. So I do spend some time to go for a run. I also stretch and I meditate a little bit before I play ladder games. That's kind of asking the question for your progress uh, for your progress in your MMR. Should you spend 30 minutes playing another ladder game or exercising, stretching and meditating and breathing before you play? I think the latter. I think it's to a point you can get diminishing returns on just doing the same thing over and over. You can approach it from multiple angles and that's a big benefit. So faith in that regard or the conversation with God where you trying to figure out things would serve for you as a mental preparation for yourself. It's not that whatever comes out of the faith, like God intervening with your life would be the result, but that the the introspection that comes from it is the, the reward in and of itself. Yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically, um, having a active conversation with God where you um, think about your own life would be something that is a worthwhile faith practice while just praying that something will change um, without questioning it yourself would be not as worthwhile a faith practice. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Your faith practice should be robust, whatever it is. <laughs> it should be broad-based and firm and have a secure foundation. You should understand not just the what of what you believe, but the why you believe those things and how it links into the overall big picture. Don't just take everyone's word for it. You should be able to sort out some things for yourself. Yeah. Well, cool. I enjoyed this discussion a lot. I felt like I had more to say, given my personal experience. I haven't had... I think it, it, it will get easier going forward as well. Like the, As the ideas become a bit more temporary, there's more things we have to comment on them than what, like what the Greeks were thinking is pretty far removed from our thinking nowadays. While there's some tendencies... They, they established, we have such a different framework on how to see the world that it, it's difficult to, to go into um, a conversation about Greek philosophy without having a lot of prior knowledge of it and, and have something meaningful to say. Mm -hmm.
and as we go forward, we talk about um, ideas that are um, much closer to what, what we think of the world nowadays, so it will be easier to talk about. That's true. What would you think would be our next topic we're going to hit? Um, while preparing for this, I noticed that we kind of didn't cover the Romans, which has some um, interesting ideas and philosophy as well. They mostly worked with the Greek um, texts. There's a lot of other um, branches of philosophy we could look at specifically. But if we're just keeping on the timeline, I think we would go into Reformation and how we we broke from this tradition of just making philosophy based around God and the effect that that had on philosophy and overall society. Mm -hmm. Sweet. How many episodes of um, Nietzsche do you think we would do? Given that he's your favorite. Nine? The <laughs> nine of Nietzsche. Velocity Clock with Eche Fatum Ultimate Edition. <laughs> I mean, I could talk for about a year about Nietzsche. Um, it's difficult to make it like meaningful and condensed. I think three episodes would work well to kind of go through his stages in life and how he started doing philosophy, how like his main body of work, and then when he got sick, he he wrote his last two works which is the antichrist and ectehoho and the first being the conclusion of his thinking about christianity and how we should transform away from it and the second one being um, him talking about his own work which is super interesting um, one thing he wrote in there was why did i write my uh, Zarathustra not as a as a poet, I might have been able to do so. So he's he's basically looking at his own work critically, and looking at Nietzsche through these um, at these three different times. It'd be interesting to kind of establish his thinking and what he was thinking of his own thinking at the time. Thinking about thinking metacognition. And Metacog was actually the nickname that I was going to take for myself first before Neuro. Because that's more directly the concept of what I'm trying to do with the stream is encourage people to be mindful of their thoughts, especially their emotions related to tilt in competitive games. But it applies to other things. Metacog doesn't have the same ring to it as Neuro does. So switching to neuro was more of a style choice i think than a a core element neuro already is kind of self-explanatory it is about mind so it's not incorrect but it's not what i started with yeah metacog the other name would have been more meta too yeah <laughs> um one thing I, I forgot to mention is the the impact that scholasticism had on how we educate people so i'm not sure about the year but basically the trivium and the quadrivium so the basics for 
um, grade school teaching was established by this uh, by a scholastic scholar, and this was the basis for education up until the early twentieth century. So, all our school teachings were based on scholastic ideas, not in a faith-based way. So the trivium is not big on faith. It's big on logic. It's big on grammar, on how we convey information. But still, its foundation is um, in medieval times, and we use that for another 600 years to teach people, which is interesting and had a profound impact. Today we learned. Oh, nice. It's always a pleasure doing these segments with you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure coming on, and I'll have a bunch more time going forward to prepare for lectures because I'll be having one and a half hour commute um, on two days a week, one direction, so three hours to do uh, philosophy. Do you have to drive? Six hours. What is the method of transit? Um, train. Oh, nice. Yeah, you have the ability to ride on the train. I was like, don't drive and write, dude. <laughs> nah, I can't drive while driving. I'm already texting. Don't text and drive, people. Stay safe. <laughs> you can do the voice stuff. People can wait. It's not that big of a rush. Um, can we have some Viking mythology lessons? Um, I could definitely dive into some North mythology. It's not as heavy on philosophy per se, but it definitely had a profound impact. So it's it's something we could be talking about. I think now that I have a bit more time, I can do a straw poll in the philosophy discord again and to have people decide on what they want to hear about. Like the field of philosophy itself is so big, you could basically talk about almost anything. So it's difficult to to decide on a topic. I'm actually going to put a link that goes directly to the philosophy channel in Twitch chat. So if you didn't know we have a philosophy channel, we do. We have quite a few cool channels in the Neuro Discord that are pretty active. If you have any questions about any of those things, or you want to share something interesting in those categories, there's math, there's philosophy, there's mastery, which is just your own frontiers of personal progress. If you're trying to get better at a sport or arts and crafts and stuff like that, you can show off your stuff and talk about it and teach and learn from other people. Philosophy as well. What topics do you want? Talk about it. You want Norse mythology? I kind of want that too, actually. I wouldn't be opposed. And it's not something I'm super familiar with, but... Yeah, I have the time to prepare it now, so we can definitely talk about that. And there's some fairly interesting ideas, and they also went into Chris, uh, the Christian belief. Like, as I said, they, they tried to incorporate everything they came across. Mm. Let me take the good stuff from other things that already work. That's kind of like, wow. When you thought of, when you asked the question about the reason for playing WoW, I thought you might go all the way back to Tolkien, because <laughs> so many of the concepts in this game are just direct rips of the different creatures and races and stuff in his universe. 
Yeah, but that's a common theme. As with Christianity, so with um, video games, we build on other things. It's hard to come up with something super unique and doesn't draw on any prior knowledge of similar things, in quotes. Mm -hmm. Everything is a remix. It's a quote that's kind of similar to that. Well, nice. Uh, what's the quote? Um, Bad artists copy, good artists steal. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Yeah, I think we might as well end the episode here. And then if there's anything else to talk about, we can talk about that off off the record sweet thank you for tuning in to another episode of philosophy clock with eche fatum on the voice of neuro segment thank you for having me gg